So I've entitled this final paragraph in chapter 18, The Loss and Renewal of Assurance. And I just want to point out the, the overall structure. We can sort of break it into two parts, beginning with the word true, all the way down to the phrase walk in darkness and have no light. There's one section. We're going to look at that. This describes what is the common experience of those who have come to true assurance. And then following that word light, beginning with the word yet, all the way to the end of the paragraph, the confession describes those remaining graces which uphold the saints even while we deal with the ups and downs of assurance. So there are the two main parts. The loss of assurance, and by loss that doesn't necessarily mean the complete vanishing of assurance, but its ups and downs. And then the means of its renewal. Now as we walk through this paragraph, I want to again try to constantly draw your attention to the little implicit statements that are dealing with the nature of assurance. The more I think about this, I believe that a lot of, of the erroneous thinking on this subject is based on very simple oversights with regard to the nature of assurance. And this goes for many people who, uh, who would say that they struggle with assurance. I believe, I believe a lot of people who would say, I struggle with assurance might actually be struggling with misunderstanding what assurance actually is. To illustrate the point, if I told you rattlesnakes are deadly, if you see a rattlesnake, run. A rattlesnake is a circular, hardened, orange vegetable, no, fruit, fruit that is harvested in the fall then every time you saw a pumpkin, you would run away. Not because there's anything deadly about a pumpkin, which is a fruit, by the way. Not that there's anything deadly about a pumpkin, but because you're unclear on the nature of a rattlesnake. You see, if we, if we get these things mixed up, uh, a lot of times we, we don't really know what we're after. We're trying to achieve something, and we think we're struggling with assurance what might actually be happening is we are enduring the common struggles that come with assurance. So that's what I want to, I want to try to draw your attention to those things while we, we look at all of this. So listen for the structure, two parts. The uh, loss of assurance and then the renewal of assurance. But also listen for the things, statements about the nature of assurance. So notice this paragraph says, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. Shaken, uh, unsettled, diminished means it can weaken, it can lessen. Intermitted means to cause to cease for a time. It's kind of choppy. Here, it's here, then it stops, then it's here, then it stops, then it's here, then it stops. All of this can happen to assurance. Again, notice what the language. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation. These are Christians that we're talking about. These Christians have some kind of assurance, and what they have is shaken, it is diminished, it is intermitted, divers ways. That means in many different ways. 
Now, what does that teach us about the nature of assurance? That teaches us that assurance of salvation is not a monolithic state of existence that you come into and settle and it's fixed and it's never an issue again. That's not what assurance is. If you think you're going to come into an immutable state, then any time there is a shaking, any time there is a, a diminishing, any time there is an intermittence, you think, I'm struggling with assurance. Maybe you're not struggling with assurance. Maybe you're struggling as a person who has assurance. So assurance, this Christian assurance, can be shaken. Now that doesn't mean the grounds of our assurance are shaken. They go back to the grounds, the, uh, the blood and righteousness of Christ, the evidences of grace uh, within us, the testimony of the Holy Spirit... It's not that those things are shaken. Those things can't be shaken. But perhaps our understanding or our perception of them might be shaken for a time. True assurance can be diminished. Which means what? It can also grow. It can increase. Assurance is a grace. Just like faith. And as with all of the graces, we have to leave room for growth and advance. It doesn't just come in the full maturity of the thing itself. It can be shaken. It can be diminished. It can be intermitted. It could come and go. Now, if you thought that assurance of grace and salvation was some sort of settled, immutable condition of the mind and spirit that was not given to changes, and you never experienced that unreasonable expectation, you would assume, I'm struggling with assurance. I mean, I'm looking for this immutable state. I've never experienced that immutable state. Therefore, I don't have assurance. Maybe you do have assurance, but it's being shaken. It's diminishing. Maybe it's intermitted. To be shaken or diminished or intermitted, all of these things assume some sort of status which can be shaken, diminished, or intermitted. Buildings that have never been built can't be shaken. Rivers that don't have any water can't diminish. Rain which has never fallen can't be intermittent showers. These all presuppose some form of something there that is shaken, that is diminished, that is intermitted. And I want you to understand that very often the struggles that we go through, rather than actually decreasing our assurance, we ought to take these things, use them to our advantage. Very often they're the very works of grace in us upon which we can build our assurance. You, you feel something being shaken. What's being shaken? Um, my assurance. Your what? Your assurance? That should be a positive thing. That, that's a blessing. Well, wait a second. You noticed that something went from, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, something went from a level 8 to a level 4? You noticed that? You caught that in your soul? That's grace. Unregenerate men don't notice those things. We use these things that we, we often, we see them or we experience them and as soon as they come into our lives, we just plop down on the floor and, and we're just we're, we're in, in, in a destitute state rather than saying, I feel something. I feel life. I feel changes. Something is happening in my soul. Next, there's this list of the diverse ways, the, the very, very uh, varying or different ways that assurance can be shaken or diminished or intermitted. This is very important. As by 
True believers may have the assurance of their salvation, divers' ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it. That is, by failing to maintain your assurance. Now, did you know that assurance of salvation was something you have to maintain? Well, if you don't, then you're going to be confused on the nature of it. You might say, well, I want to come to a full assurance. I am so tired of laboring diligently to make my calling and election sure. I'm ready to come into it and give up that. That's not going to happen. We will be making our calling and election sure until the day we breathe our last. So we don't get to come into this state. It is something we have to preserve, to maintain. Assurance requires this making your calling and election sure. So if we are uh, failing to maintain it, if we are being negligent in the preservation of our assurance, then that's going to cause our assurance to to shake, to be diminished or intermitted. Turn to uh, Song of Solomon chapter 5. The Confession references Song of Solomon chapter 5. In my older facsimile copy, it's C-A-N-T, Canticles. If you ever see Canticles, that's Song of Solomon. Most people don't, don't recognize that. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. The, the reference here is to verses 2, 3, and 6. I'm going to read verses 2 all the way down through 6, and then we'll unpack what's happening. A lot of times we read this book and it, we just, we, we're like, what's, what's going on? This is not that difficult. Just, just think about it. Now... My Bible has the, the, the little titles to tell us who's talking, she, he, she, he, the, the bride or the bridegroom. But this is she. The bride is speaking. And she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Then we have a quotation. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. End quote. He just spoke through the door. Then she speaks again. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Now notice what's happening. The groom knocks. He's speaking to her. Open the door. I want to be with you. I want to, to, uh, to have fellowship, communion, interaction. His desire is to be with her. His head, it says, is wet with the dew. His locks with the drop of the night. He's been out all night. He's knocking on the door. The groom has come to initiate communion and interaction. He knocked. Okay? He knocked. But in verse 3, what does she do? She makes excuses. I've already taken my clothes off. And gotten in the bed. What am I going to do? Put my clothes back on? I've already washed my feet. What am I going to do? Swing my feet out of the bed and walk across this dirty floor and get my feet dirty again, dirty again, walking to the door? What am I going to do? She begins to make these excuses. 
She hears his hand at the latch. She gets excited. She finally gets up and goes to the door. She opens it and what happens? Verse 6, he's not there. He's gone. She made excuses for why she could not actively engage in communion with her bridegroom. Now, even though she eventually got up, the fact that she was not willing at first to inconvenience herself proved that this communion with her bridegroom was not her priority. Personal convenience was her idol. I'm going to have to put my clothes back on. I'm going to get my feet dirty again. I'm going to have to get up an hour early out of bed. I'm going to have to stay up later. I'm going to... It's just inconvenient, really. What's the lesson? The presence of this reference first shows that our Baptist forefathers and those before them understood that the Song of Solomon was clearly about more than marriage. Why? Because no marriage is about just marriage, Ephesians 5. It's about Christ and the church and the interactions between Christ and His church and Christ with individual saints. Christ, the bridegroom, knocks. He desires communion. He's outside. He's waiting. He is the initiator. We love Him because He first loved us. He's the initiator. He's come for communion, but not on your terms, on His terms. He comes on His terms. Now what do we, what do, we do? Very often we make excuses revolving around personal convenience as to why I can't give my time to the Lord. Because personal convenience is our idol. The fact that we are not willing to inconvenience ourselves proves that communion with Christ is not a priority to us. Now, we might eventually get up and get around to it. And what we do is expect, now I'm here, now I've got my Bible. God, you better show up and do something here. And He says, I don't serve your wishes. I'm not on your terms. We might eventually get around to it. But He's not constrained by us. Now what happens when we do this? Let's just get very practical. Let's say we know that we ought to be spending time with the Lord on a daily basis, but it's just inconvenient to do it in the morning. Not that we have to do something in the morning, but if my motivation is it's just inconvenient, that's a problem. We don't, we don't do, our, do things because they're convenient or inconvenient. But if I've already got that in my mind, this is, it's really just an inconvenience for me to get up out of bed before work or before the children get out of bed and make a cup of coffee and open the Scriptures and read them and give, give time to think through them and time to pray through what I'm reading... That's just inconvenient because I can't put that in a little 15-minute block, right? You can't, you can't do that. So, so what, what do I do? I, do I give myself 30 minutes? Do I give myself an hour? What do I do? So it's, it's inconvenient. Now, eventually we might get around to it and we, we set our alarm clocks by the every minute of the day, right? So, Lord, you got 15 minutes. Communion, 15 minutes. If, you ain't got, if it don't happen in 15 minutes, I'm out. We begin to dictate our own terms. This is how this has to happen, Lord. What does this do? It makes our attempts at a devotional life lifeless and weak. It causes us to doubt. We, we begin to set the terms. Then we come to the Scriptures. We give the Lord our 15 minutes that we've all allotted to Him... We get done, we're looking at the clock, 15 minutes is up, Lord, where are you at? 
Then we go off about our business saying, man, my, my devotional life's just really dry. I'm just not getting anything out of it. I don't know what's going on. No, you do know what's going on. You are dictating through convenience, how you are going to have communion with the Lord. This causes us to begin to doubt. Have I ever known Christ? Once a true believer realizes that this has happened, or this might have even been habitual. Maybe you're there right now and you're thinking, that's exactly what I've been doing for months or years. You realize that this might have been your habit, and then you are now wondering... Do I really care about my beloved? Do I really care about Christ? If that's the way I've been living, how could I even call myself a Christian? How could I be so foolish? And now that's shaking the ground of your assurance. All of a sudden, you're beginning to analyze these things. And it shakes the ground of your assurance. You have been negligent in the preserving of your assurance. Not actively engaging or attending the means of grace that have been given. You might be attending, but you're attending on your terms. You allow personal convenience to have sway over your willingness to give yourself to the means of grace, especially on the Lord's Day. Gathering with the saints is a means of grace, but boy, it's really convenient to stick around very long. So I'll give the saints from about 9.55 to about, you know, however, you block it off. This is how much time I've got to get means of grace. You begin to block it off and you go home and lay down in bed at night and, nothing, and you've got nothing. You've, you've grown none. You've not received any edification because you are the one dictating. Now, I'm not saying that anybody has to be here a certain amount of time. I'm just saying when we begin to let convenience dictate anything, that's a problem. This is a, a, a surefire way to have your assurance shaken, diminished, or intermitted. The second way that this can happen, by falling into some special sin, which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit. Turn to Psalms, the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, the probably the most popular sin in the Scriptures. Psalm 51, the title tells us that this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. We know the story. David has at this point committed a series of what we would consider very heinous sins. And what is the spiritual condition that we find David in after falling into these sins. The confession points us to verse 8, verse 12, and verse 14. Verse 8, listen to David's prayer. Let me hear joy and gladness. Why is he praying that? Because he has no joy. He has no gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Broken bones point us to deep, internal pain of the soul. Not the sting of a scrape on the knee, but the internal pulsing throb of a wounded conscience. He's hurting deep. This is what happens when you fall into sin. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why does he pray that? Because at one time he had it, now he doesn't have it. And so he's praying, Restore, give me back what I once had. This sin has robbed me of the joy of your salvation. David more than likely could not delight in his salvation because his conscience reminded him 
that he has abused his salvation. He's made a public mockery of his profession. So he prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me, the ESV renders it, with a willing spirit or uphold me with thy free spirit. David realizes, I can't uphold myself. This is a prime example of the fact that David is not able to bring himself back from this. And so he calls out to God, nothing that I do is sufficient to sustain me, so give your spirit to uphold me. This is how he feels because he's fallen into sin. Verse 14, he prays, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Now David knows the law. David knows at this point, I'm guilty of at least two capital offenses, capital crimes. Now as king, nobody is going to come over him and execute the judgment against these crimes. And yet, because he's a believer, his conscience is plagued with this reality. I have committed the crime in which I need the city of refuge. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the criminal. I'm the murderer. He knows that. He knows that he's guilty. Now the point is that falling into these kinds of sins, what the confession refers to as special sin. Falling into these types of sins can do two things. Plague the conscience and grieve the Holy Spirit. With a guilty conscience, knowing the reality that we have offended God, one begins to doubt their standing with God. Now this might not be a drift into self-righteousness. Very often it can be. I've sinned. I'm basing my standing with God on the fact that I'm either a sinner or not a sinner. I've sinned and now I'm beginning to struggle with it. But it, but it might not be that. It might be the, the fact of simply knowing. As we read in the psalm this morning, David knows how to act. David knows the law. David knows the word. David's lived it. I know how a Christian's supposed to live. And yet I just did some things that I would have said, bring those people around me and I'm going to put them to death. I just did that. So he's doubting. How could I have done this? If, if we go back to those foundations of assurance and one of them is inward evidences of the graces of the Spirit, if the evidences of grace is the, a, a ground of our assurance, then a flagrant despising of the graces would certainly begin to cast doubt on whether or not we had ever experienced God's grace. We begin to look at things in our lives and say, I see that this change and this change and this change, it seems like the Lord is really working in me and then we fall into some sin. And we begin to think, how could this happen? I was, on a, I was on a good path. I was changing. Things were going well. I was, I was looking at the work of the Spirit and all of a sudden I've sinned. This, this, there's, there's a disconnect. Something's not making sense here. And we begin to doubt. And secondly, this grieves the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, we know, is easily grieved and easily provoked, especially by our sins. The same Spirit that is the worker of all of these graces in us, including assurance, is the one that we provoke when we sin against Him. And of course, we're not going to experience the grace of assurance like we desire if we are provoking and grieving the very one who's supposed to be giving the increase of that assurance. 
the Holy Spirit being like a dove. You could almost think of Elijah being fed by the ravens just because they're another bird, but this image came into my mind. If these ravens are bringing Elijah food and he's scaring them off every time they get near, he gets no food. If the Spirit of God is the one working the graces and we're grieving Him with our sins, how can we expect our assurance to increase? So when we fall into sin, we grieve the Spirit, we, we have a guilty conscience and this will shake or diminish or uh, chop up our assurance. Thirdly, by some sudden or vehement temptation. Some sudden or vehement temptation. Now the word for temptation here isn't meant to be taken as a purely sinful temptation to sin. It's more like a trial or a test like we see in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. In other words, some sudden, vehement trial or test comes into your life and you've had very little time to prepare. You weren't ready for this. This can very often shake someone's assurance. Now the references that are given here, are they take a little work to, to notice what's happening. The first one is Psalm 116 and verse 11. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Now, we would, we would agree, all mankind are liars. But the language here implies that, that what David said wasn't really what he should have said. He has, he's in danger and he sort of speaks in haste. He speaks rashly. In his alarm, he throws out a, a, a broad sweeping generalization. Then there's Psalm 77 verses 7 and 8 which we looked at a couple weeks ago. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Again, in times of despair and in our haste, we begin to, in the language of that psalm, make a diligent search. But when we begin that search, we don't begin that search as confidently as we end that search. We're examining and we're searching. You don't examine and search for something that you have in its fullness right in front of you. You begin this search and that psalm is, is, out, is, is laying out a process. I'm going to make a search. And he begins to search, search, search. But there at the beginning, he's throwing out questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Has His promises end for all time? And then the third one is Psalm 31, 22. Again, I set in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. Same idea as the first one. In my alarm, in a moment of alarm, in a, a time of surprise and shock, I just shout it out, I'm cut off. Now this is clearly not so of those who belong to God. We don't, we're not cut off from God, but because this severe... Uh, trial, this, this uh, sudden or vehement temptation comes in, all of a sudden we, we begin to lash out in questions, doubts, worries, fears. Some severe tragedy or life-altering event happens which radically changes the way someone views the world. And very often this is enough to send someone into hasty accusations against God or themselves. Very often because we expect that since I belong to God, things are going to go like this, 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 and this. And whenever that doesn't happen, if we're not prepared, we might lash out. God, how could you? Would you do this to me? Maybe I'm not yours. Have you cut, off, have you cut me off forever? 
Not only that, but having lashed out in those rash judgments, we might look back and we put our hands, our face in our hands and we say, how could a Christian, a, a Christian, I profess to be a Christian, how could I even think that God has cut me off? How could that question even come into my mind? And that can shake or diminish or cut off your assurance. We, we act out in ways that, that are not in accord with what we know we ought to be doing. This can happen. And then fourthly, by God's withdrawing the light of His countenance and suffering even such as fear Him to walk in darkness and have no light. Psalm 30 verse 7 says, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Notice very simply, speaking to God, God, you hid your face. Now I said this morning that God is light. God is by nature a revealer, a self-revealer. And so for God to hide His face means that He might withhold the graces by which we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who He is for a time. I want to read this from several quotes from John Owen in his... Uh, work on the glory of Christ or banner of truth's cliff notes on the glory of Christ. He says, While we are in this life, the Lord Christ is pleased in His sovereign wisdom sometimes to withdraw and, as it were, to hide Himself from us. When this happens, it is as if clouds and darkness cover our minds. Faith is helpless. We cannot behold His glory. We seek Him, but we cannot find Him. This hiding of the face of God is the hiding of His glory which shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the glory of Christ Himself, since His glory is to show forth the glory of God. Men may still hold a right doctrine of Christ, but beholding the glory of Christ does not lie in remembering doctrine. Men may have the outward form of godliness, but no longer have the encouragement of Christ's presence and glory. He goes on to say the first consequence of Christ's withdrawing Himself from us is that inward graces grow weak and we tend to rely more and more on outside helps. Above all, we lose the desire for holy meditation and we spend less and less time with Christ. Just as frost withers the plants in the garden, so grace in our hearts also withers when the Son of Righteousness withdraws and hides Himself. When we find a spiritual deadness and coldness in our souls and no joy in religious duties, then we know that Christ has withdrawn Himself. Now, listen to this. Some complain of their sad spiritual state. Some make great self-efforts to revive their souls, such as imposing on themselves many religious duties. But if they would only behold the glory of Christ by faith, as He is revealed to us in the Scriptures, they would soon be healed. If only they would abide in Christ, then they would be fruitful. We can complain all day long. I'm just not feeling it. I'm just dry. I'm just cold. I'm just not getting anything out of this or that. We have the remedy. Look unto Christ. 
Turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and just begin to read and look at this man and consider his perfections. Watch him live. Watch him act. Meditate. Roll around in your mind this Savior and His glory and behold it and worship. But he can withdraw the light of his countenance. And God is sovereign in this matter. He does as He pleases. Very often this is for his own purposes. Of, of King Hezekiah it was said, Second Chronicles 32-31, God left him to himself in order to test him to know all that was in his heart. God does this. He will step back to watch and see how far you can go before you realize, I'm, I'm, I'm not near you, Lord. Through these things, negligence in preserving our assurance, falling into sin, sudden trials and God withdrawing the light of His countenance, and there might be many more, but through these things, our assurance can be shaken, diminished, and intermitted. And again, if these things are happening, we need to try to be sensitive to use them as opportunities to behold the glory of Christ. That's the remedy. Look unto Jesus. Use the reality of felt loss to say, if I'm feeling a shaking of my assurance, it's because there's something to feel. Praise the Lord. You've got something to work with. Very often, if someone will vocalize it or force someone to vocalize it and say, I'm just really struggling with my assurance, that's almost a sure sign that they are truly, in fact, born again. If you're thinking that, I'm I'm really struggling, I'm really worried, more than likely... You're born again. That, we can use that as a means of assurance. The question at that point is, why do I feel this way? Why am I struggling like this? Unregenerate men are not concerned about the assurance of their salvation. Unregenerate men are perfectly assured that everything that they do is fine. They're, they're, they have very often uh, more of that false assurance than believers have with, of true assurance. So, there is hope, and that's where this paragraph Leaves us five things that cannot be fully removed even when our assurance is assailed. Beginning with the word yet. So this can happen. It can be shaken, can be diminished, can be intermitted. intermitted. Yet, they are never destitute of, first, the seed of God. 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Because we've been born again, the divine principle of life implanted in us at regeneration cannot be taken away. It it remains no matter the consequences. That is an, an, uh, an impartation from God that remains for eternity. So we 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 can't be we can't lose that. Secondly, and life of faith. We're never destitute of the life of faith. Because faith too is one of these bedrock graces of salvation. It is imparted to us by the Spirit. It can't die. The reference here is to Luke twenty two thirty two, where Christ speaking to Peter says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Christ as our high priest ensures our faith cannot fail. He is maintaining it. Faith can't fail. Thirdly, love of Christ and the brethren. Even when our assurance is weakened, we're still going to have love. We're still going to have some love to Christ, some love to Christian brethren. It'll be there. Fourthly, the sincerity of heart, or that sincerity of heart. This is, I think, why so many people who struggle with assurance are very quick to admit it. 
Because they're sincere. They're ready to deal with it. They're ready to get to the roots of it. Their hope is in God. They have no desire to cover it up. No need. They don't, they're not ashamed to say, hey, I'm struggling. Help me here. Help me. Help me. Because they're sincere. Unregenerate men are insincere. They want to cover up. They want to hide. They want to, to justify themselves or convince themselves of, of things that are not so. But believers are sincere. And number five, conscience of duty. Conscience of duty. Isn't it amazing that when our assurance might be might wane almost to nothing and we're cold in our duties, we struggle in our duties, something in us will not let us abandon the ship. No matter how difficult it is. If the thought even came into your mind, just give up. You've done this for three weeks. Nothing's happened. He's not real. Close the book and go about your life. Give it up. You would view that as literal insanity. I simply cannot depart from what I know I must do. Regardless of how I feel, regardless of what's coming out of it, I can't stop. As Peter would say, only you have the words of eternal life. I've got nowhere else to go. I have entrusted myself to this Christ. I'm dependent upon Him. I've got no other, other hope, no other plea. Conscience of duty. That's, that's the strangest thing. The unbeliever cannot make sense of why we do this. The unbeliever would, would love to have and, and very often develops this false assurance with no duty. He's fine. You know, you, you begin to talk about uh, scheduling time with the Lord and, and duties... What does the unbeliever say? Oh, that's legalism. Oh, you're just trying to work your way to heaven. You're, you're putting yourself under the law. You, the believer says, I cannot but set aside time to be with my Lord. I cannot but attempt. I cannot but go after Him. Conscience of duty. These five things will always be present in the believer in some form. Out of which, the confession says, that is, out of these remaining seeds of grace that are in us, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. In other words, the Spirit of God takes those little things that remain. Those little things, the seed of God, the life of faith, love for Christ and the brethren, something that just keeps you coming back to church, something that keeps you coming back to the Word. The Spirit will use those things and in due time, that assurance will be revived. It's ultimately the effectual working of the Spirit of God using the ordinary means of grace to increase and strengthen the already imparted graces which brings renewal to one's assurance. Little flickers little flames, smoking flax. The Spirit says, I can work with that. You just keep going. And He'll fan that. The reference here is Psalm 42, 5 and 11, which is two quotations of the same words in that psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, 
my salvation and my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. He's talking to himself. He's encouraging himself. He's saying, what are you all tore up about? Hope in God. I shall again praise Him. I might be cast down now. I might be in turmoil now. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to hope in God. I know that someday I will be restored to that praise and that joy. So I'm just going to keep hoping in Him. Why? Because our assurance is not founded on how I feel, my experiences. It is founded upon God Himself. Faith in God. So the Spirit of God will use these things to revive that assurance... And, back to the confession, by the which, that is, by those same means, those same graces, the Spirit of God keeps us, by the which, in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. Back to Lamentations chapter 3. The confession only points us to verses 26 to 31. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever. Notice this conflict. And we could go back to the beginning and read it all over again, but there's clearly a conflict. We've got someone who needs to be waiting on the Lord. Someone, a soul who is seeking God, waiting quietly for the salvation of the Lord, bearing this yoke. And we read all of those those earlier uh, horrific dispensations of God toward the prophet, perhaps speaking as a representative for the nation of Israel. All of these awful things that are coming... And he says, it's good, it's okay, it's good, just endure it, just endure it. And then the end, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Just get through this. The Lord is not going to allow any of His saints to fall into utter despair. Complete and final despair. He won't let it go that far. We are preserved from utter despair. Preserved passively by God Himself. True Christian assurance is not an immutable state of sealed, glorified, conscious awareness of being in a state of grace. Its seed is found in faith. As faith grows, that seed is nurtured. As it grows, it gives birth to a sapling of assurance. And that sapling is very often blown around. But even as it is assailed, The Spirit of God continues to work in and through the turmoil. It's good to bear the yoke. He works through the turmoil. Why? Because He wants to bring us out of ourselves. You've got to get out of yourself. Stop relying on yourself. God will have us utterly destitute of self-reliance. Everything that we're holding on to or leaning upon in ourselves, He will rip every bit of it away. He will stop at nothing to make sure that we are lying completely dependent in His arms. We need to be thankful that we have a God who is so merciful. That He will not allow us to stand on our feet like that and rely on our own strength. He brings us through these things for our good. Now if we know 
is back to the nature of assurance, the nature of salvation. If we know that that is how God works, if we know that that is what God is doing, then we don't have to take every little, uh, I had a bad quiet time, or you know, I read something, I didn't understand what it was saying, or I had a, you know, every little thing that just pops into us, and they're, they're clearly the fruits of living in a fallen world, and they're just going to be there. We don't have to take every single one of them and say, well, I guess I'm not a Christian. No, we know that's how it's going to be. That's Christianity. He uses those things to shape us and fashion us. Why? Again, because He's merciful. He's good. He brings us to Himself. I wanted to read one more quotation from ancient Brooks here. Faith cannot be lost, but assurance may. Therefore, assurance is not faith. Though assurance is a precious flower in the garden of a saint, it is, and is more infinitely sweet and delightful to the soul than all outward comforts and contents, yet it is but a flower that is subject to fade and to lose its freshness and beauty, listen to this, as saints by sad experience find. This is the experience of the saints. It's a flower, it grows, it's beautiful, infinitely sweet, infinitely delightful. As I read from the the other uh, work earlier, it's like heaven on earth, but it is the experience of the saints of God that it might be beautiful and the next day it might be gray. It might flower and it might close up. It it, uh, goes through these changes and this is the experience of the saints of God. Let's pray and then we'll stand and sing one more song together.